KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah, and today is Friday, Yom Hashishi, Yom Bet, second day of Chodesh Nisan, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Pashat Vayikra. Pashat Vayikra, the beginning, Vayikra El Moshe, Vayidabar Meshem Elav, the Aleph of the word Vayikra, the last letter of the word Vayikra is an Aleph, is an Aleph Ze'ira, it's a small Aleph. In the Sefer Torah, the Aleph is written smaller than all the other letters on the line. That's done. It's a, it's a tradition. It's passed on that that is the way it's supposed to be written. Within the tradition, there is no reason given. There are other letters like that in the Torah. There are big letters, there are small letters. This letter is a small Aleph. And no official reason is given. Many, many reasons have been given by the commentators and by Chazal and by the Midrashim over the years. One of the most famous ones, interesting Musa outlook, said that Moshe Rabbeinu was writing this Pasuk, he wanted to write instead of Vayikra, he wanted to write Vayikra. Vayikra means, and God happened to meet Moshe. It's the verb that's used to describe God's meaning with Bil'am. Vayikarilah. He appeared to him Bimikre. It happened to meet him. And God said to him, No, 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 you read Vayikra. I'm calling to you. This is an appointed meeting. I'm looking for you. I'm calling out to you. Moshe Rabbeinu and his modesty still held on to his first, his first uh, uh, attempt. We couldn't do anything other than what God had commanded. So we wrote Vayikra and then added a little Aleph to make it Vayikra. But within the word Vayikra, you don't see the truth. Vayikra is not the truth. Vayikra is the truth. But you see Moshe Rabbeinu's attempt. In other words, the word includes the modesty of Moshe. It's an interesting explanation because it's a paradox within a paradox. The whole point of Vayikra and Moshe, Rashi brings on the Pasuk, is to indicate how much God was honoring Moshe Rabbeinu. He didn't just speak to him, but he first he called to him and then spoke to him. That's the way you should, when you wish to speak to somebody, you should call out to him, call out his name, and then speak to him. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote that word, which indicates his honor, that God, God called to him before he spoke to him. That very word has an indication in it of Moshe Rabbeinu's extreme modesty, that he tried writing the exact opposite. But I'd like to share with you a different uh, explanation an explanation that is given by, more or less, I'm going to change it slightly, I suppose, but more or less by the Oiv Yisrael, of Avam Yoshua Heschel, the Yoftorov. Uh, the Oiv Yisrael's Yotzeit is this coming Sunday, Talid Nisan, and I'm taking a little bit of advantage now of the fact that I own this microphone, because the Oiv Yisrael is my great, great, great grandfather, and I have this feeling, he's a very, very, very colorful, very unusual character, even within the variegated history of Hasidut. And I have a feeling that the Obisar will be very, very pleased to be one of the first Chassidim to make it onto a podcast, to make it onto KMTT. So now it is your site, here's an explanation for the first topic in this week's Pasha. He, he points out another point. Vayikra el Moshe. Rashi brings down, you should call out to somebody, the word, 
משתמשים בו שנאמר וקרא זה אל זה. The angels use this verb, ויקרא, as it says, וקרא זה אל זה ויאמר, קדוש קדוש קדוש. So the angels call out to each other. So what's so special? We should do it to be like the angels. So the Yodisov pointed out that the Targum, the Targum Arami, the Aramaic translation of Akarat Zeh El Zeh, we're familiar with it because we say it every day in the Valetzion, is Umekablin Dein Min Dein. Umekablin Dein Min Dein. And one receives from the other. At least that's the way the Arbisal understood the word, umekablin, dein nin dein. That one receives from the other. And the Arbisal explained that when the angels speak to each other, when they join together to praise God, in order to join together, you have to be able and willing to receive from one another. He said, that's what's so special about Vayikra El Moshe, that God is coming to speak to Moshe Rabbeinu in the Olam to teach him the Torah, to give him all the halachot of Sefer Vayikra, etc. He's going to basically learn Chavruta with Moshe Rabbeinu, but obviously God is to teach him. Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who's, who's, who's receiving. But no, the reception, Moshe Rabbeinu is getting the Torah, will be, and learning the Torah, will be possible only if there's a real connection a real meeting of the mind between himself and, and God. And that takes place only if there's vikara that not only is Moshe Rabbeinu going to receive from God, but this connection exists because God, so to speak, is going to receive from Moshe Rabbeinu. In order to be able to teach, you have to be willing to receive. In order to be able to have a connection, to have a meeting, a meeting of the mind, in order to have a, 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 a real a real chibur, a real connection, a real cleaving between two people, or in this case between God, the ultimate person, Amosha Rabbeinu, that from God's side as well, there is an acceptance, a reception of Moshe Rabbeinu, and not just giving, not just handing out to Moshe Rabbeinu. That's the explanation he said based on the Tagum. On the basis of that, he explains the Aleph Ze'ira. The Aleph here represents, there's a Kabbalistic background to this, but the Aleph represents the ultimate. And it could have been a large Aleph. There is a large Aleph. The beginning of Sefer Tiburei HaYamim, which begins by listing the genealogy of man. The first word is Adam. The Aleph is large Aleph, an oversized Aleph. Because the Aleph represents the ultimate source of all, of all life, of all wisdom. But here, where God, who is the ultimate source, comes to talk to Moshe Rabbeinu, but he places himself in a receiving mode. And that, so to speak, lowering of himself. Tzimtzum. The fact that God brought himself into a small, close relationship with Moshe Rabbeinu in order to be receptive and not just given is represented by the small Aleph, Vayikra. To call out means to call out and join as an equal, mutually receptive relationship. So therefore, Vayikra has a small Aleph, but the ultimate has restricted himself, has made himself small to be able to stand in the relationship of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Rav Talmid, Chavruta Chavruta, learning together, and that's the sort and the basis of all Kabbalat Torah.
of all Torah. Torah begins that Moshe is receiving the Torah from God and then it's passed on to the future generations, generation after generation as a large chain ending at the moment in this podcast at the Yisod, at the basis of that chain is mutual receptivity, mutual openness to receive one from each other and that all began with Vayikra El Moshe, the beginning of Sefer Vayikra. Today's guest on the Erev Shabbat program is Harav Ruven Ziegler, who's been on a few number of times in the past. He's continuing his occasional series on the books being published, the books of the lectures of Harav Salavetik Zatzal. And this week, in honor of Chodesh Nisan, he will talk about the latest, the most, uh, the most recent book. It came out just a few weeks ago, the book on Pesach and the Haggadah. Welcome to the third of, of our series of lectures on Rav Soloveitchik's new books. Uh, today, I'd like to discuss uh, actually the sixth book in the series, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. The book is entitled Festival of Freedom. Essays on Pesach and the Haggadah, uh, which has obvious relevance now that we're in Chodesh Nisan. Um, the book covers a wide range of topics, uh, for example, the Seder as the quintessential Suda and the nature of the Suda in, uh, in Jewish law and in Jewish thought. Uh, it covers issues of the meaning of slavery and freedom, the symbolism of Matzah, Moshe Rabbeinu's role in the redemption, uh, the nature of the plague of the firstborn, and so on and so forth. Uh, I'd like to take one topic that's discussed in the books, uh, which is a fundamental topic for anyone who's going to a Seder. What are the essential elements of the Seder, and what is its structure? It's, there are so many things that go on at the Seder, uh, sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees. Um, the Rav finds the answer to this in, in actually in the Manishtana. Uh, according to the Rambam, there were originally five questions, and these five questions... Uh, pinpoint the five essential elements of the Seder. These are, uh, originally there was a question about Pesach Zesh Anu Ochlim, Shebechol Halilot Anu Ochlim, Basar Mevushal, and so on, but tonight uh, just uh, Korban Pesach. The, uh, so that was uh, one question. Uh, then there are questions on Matzah Maror, these are the three main mitzvot of the Seder, as Rabban Gamliel pointed out, Pesach, Matzah, Umarar. So these are three essential elements. And then there are two more questions, which are a little more enigmatic. One is, Generally, we don't even dip uh, our food once, and tonight we dip twice. And the second, Um Generally, we eat either sitting or reclining, and tonight we all recline. Why these two questions? I can understand why you would want to pinpoint Pesach, Matzah, Omar as essential elements of the Seder. But what's so special about uh, Matbilin and Misubin? The Rav says that these really represent uh, the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, which is the fourth major mitzvah of the evening, in addition to Pesach, Matzah, Omar. And Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim has two aspects. Uh, there are two, two means by which we fulfill it. And these are represented by Matbilin and Misubin. Uh, let me explain. The Matbilin 
uh, is something that we do in order to arouse the curiosity of the children. Generally, we don't dip our food, and today we do so as to arouse it, to arouse the children. Uh, this refers to Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim by means of stimulating curiosity, uh, engendering discussion, telling the story to them. Um, this is the classically understood uh, method of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim uh, by means of dialogue, question and answer, and uh, there are many things, in fact, that we do at the Seder that are meant to stimulate the children's curiosity so that we can properly fulfill this aspect of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, of recounting the Exodus. The Rav... Um, develops this idea further. He says, I quote from page 53 of the book, the form of narration in the Haggadah avails itself of dialogue. One person asks and another person answers. It is necessary to dramatize this narration because God reveals himself to man if and when the latter searches for him. If one does not inquire, if one expects God to reveal himself without making an all-out effort to find him, one will never meet God. Um, the Ramban, on the verse uh, says, you should come to me from distant lands and you should keep inquiring where is the road leading to God's habitation. The searching for the sanctuary, the curiosity to know the location of the sanctuary, is itself redeeming and sanctifying. The curiosity hallows the pilgrimage and makes it meaningful. If one does not search for God, if a Jew does not keep in mind where is the road leading to the temple, then he or she will never find the temple. On the first night of Pesach, we tell the story of a long search by man for God and of God responding to the inquisitive search of God taking man who longs for him into his embrace. At the Seder, we try to stimulate the naive curiosity of the children and thereby to make them into God-searchers. So this is the significance of the element of, of the question of Matbilin, which refers to Sipur by means of telling the story and stimulating curiosity. The, however, there's another means by which we fulfill the mitzvah of Sipur Yitzit Mitzrayim, and it's not by talking about it and telling it, but by demonstrating it, by performing symbolic actions. Um, and this is symbolized by misubin. We recline to demonstrate our freedom. Uh, for the same reason, we drink four cups of wine. Uh, in fact, even the mitzvot of Pesach Matzah Omar have two elements in their fulfillment. Uh, one is that they're actually uh, eating the Pesach, the Matzah, and the Mar is a, is a mitzvah in itself. However, it is also a fulfillment of Sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim, as Rabban Gamliel makes clear. He says, Pesach zushanu achlim al shuma, mishum shaloi speak batzekam shalvotenu lachmitz, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the same with Pesach and Mara. In other words, by eating it, we are both fulfilling a mitzvah of eating, and we are also engaging in a dramatic uh, reenactment of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of demonstrating the consequences of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Um, the Rav points out that the Rambam was actually the first to use the term Seder, referring to the mitzvah that we perform on the first night of Pesach. He connected to the Rambam's use of the term Seder with the reference to the Seder HaAvod on Yom Kippurim, the temple service on Yom Kippur. Just as in the temple service on Yom Kippur, the order of events was crucial, so too in the Seder on Pesach night, the order of events is crucial. If we understand the Seder just as a collection of mitzvot that need to be performed on the same night, then what difference does it matter in what order you perform them? But when you understand that all the different mitzvot of Pesach night are integrated into the framework of Sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim, then you understand why they need to be in a certain order. The story has to be told in a certain way. Uh, before you perform the symbolic actions of eating matzah and marah, 
first you have to explain their meaning. Therefore, you need to do Magid before you get to Motzi Matzah and tomorrow, and so on. Now, not only is there a structure that we have to perform Magid before we eat the Matzah and so on and so forth, but even within Magid itself, there's a, there's a structure that the Rav takes great pains to point out. Uh, the Torah tells us in uh, Dvarim, Perek Vav, V'amarta uh, levincha, Avadim hayinu Hashem chazaka, etc. And then we continue. We tell our children, uh, we were slaves to Paro in Egypt, and we also tell our children, Hashem hukim ha'ele. Uh, God commanded us to perform all these commandments. There are two parts to the answer that we give to our child on Pesach night, not just the story that we were enslaved. But also, we have to discuss the laws of Pesach with them. Um, there are two parts of the answer here. And so too, when we recount uh, in Magid, when we perform the mitzvah, it's not enough just to tell the story, but we also have to examine the laws. Uh, and we can see this from the story that the Gemara brings, uh, from the story that the Haggadah brings about the rabbis who were Mesubin Brak. And they spent the entire night engaged in Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. Does it mean that the whole night they were telling the story, that they were talking about the miracles? The Tosefta in uh, Psachim relates a similar story. And it says the following, Not just to tell the story the whole night, but to discuss the laws, to study the laws the entire night. Afilu beno leven leven beno, afilu beno leven atzmo. Um, there's a story recounted about rabbis, not in Bnei Brak, but in Lud, who spent the whole night discussing Hilchot HaPesach, the laws of Pesach. So, first we, in the Magid section, we establish by means of Manishtana what are the basic mitzvot of the night. Then we state as a general introduction, Avadim Hainu Mitzrayim. And then, before we get to the story, which will be in the latter part of, of Magid, first we take one mitzvah of Pesach night and we examine all of its halachic ramifications. Now, instead of choosing an esoteric mitzvah like the Korban Pesach, the Paschal sacrifice, which is something that a person has to reach a certain level of learning to be able to understand all the details of, we take the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim and we examine its halachic parameters. Um, so, first we say, uh, Had God not redeemed our forefathers from Egypt, then we would still be enslaved to power in Egypt. This is the foundation of our mitzvah of Sipur, namely, Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim is still relevant to us. Then we say, um, even if we were all wise, we would still have to tell the story. From here we learn that you have to tell Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, even if you already know all the details, that uh, like a Chacham Navon Yodea uh, Torah, you have to bring all the different elements of wisdom into telling the story. The Rav interprets Chachamim Nevonim Yodim Torah has three different types of wisdom, intuition, systematization, and application. And each of these is necessary when discussing Yitziat Mitzrayim. Then we go on and we say, Kol hamar saper Mitzrayim, hareza mishubach. 
this tells us that Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim is a mitzvah which doesn't have a shear. It, it has no bounds. You can go on as much as you want. Um, then we have uh, the story about the sages in Bnei Brak that tells us that the time of, of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim is all night long, despite Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah's opinion that the Korban Pesach can only be eaten until midnight. Sipur is not dependent on eating the Korban Pesach. Then the Haggadah mentions something enigmatic. The ruling of Rabbi Lezer ben Azariah that Tzchirat Yitziat Mitzrayim is to be accomplished by day and by night. This is not Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim is something which is done at the Seder on one night a year. Zechirat Yitziat Mitzrayim is something which is done daily. What is this doing here? You could say that um, as long as we're discussing the mitzvot related to Yitziat Mitzrayim, we bring this as well. The Rambam's Haggadah uh, has a different wording than we do, which actually resolves our problem. And it, instead of saying, Amar Rabelezer ben Azariah, shana, it says, Amar lahem Rabelezer ben Azariah. In other words, we just told the story of the five rabbis who were in Bnei Brak and were, dis- and were discussing Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim the whole night. And then, as part of that conversation, Rabbi Lezer ben Azariah discussed with them also Zechirat Yitziat Mitzrayim. That's according to the Rambam's wording. Um, next, we move on to Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu, and then the Arba Banim. Um, this tells us how we're supposed to accomplish uh, Yitziat Mitzrayim, that we have to just... Uh, the, the, the section of the Four Sons teaches us that you have to tell it to another person, particularly to children, you have to tailor the mode of sipur to the understanding of, of the child. Um, and um, the Rav actually interprets the Arba Banim as falling into two categories. There's the Chacham and the Tam, who's the more intelligent and less intelligent child. And each one has to be taught sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim in the way that's appropriate to the child. And then the Rasha and Eno Yodeh are a different category. The Rasha is, rebe- is the rebellious child, and the Eno is the apathetic, uninterested child. All four of these children must be engaged at the Seder table in the manner appropriate to each one. Next, we move on to Yachol Mirosh Chodesh, Talmud Lomar Bayomahu, which discusses the time when this mitzvah is supposed to be accomplished. In short, everything from Avadim Hayinu until... Yachol uh, Mirosh Chodesh is an examination of the halachic parameters of the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. It's necessary. Part of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim is not just telling the story, but first we have to recount the laws. We discuss who accomplishes this mitzvah of Sipur, how, when, and so on and so forth. Once we've discussed the laws, then we can begin the story itself. Now, how are we supposed to tell the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim? Uh, the Mishnah says, Matchil bignutu misayem b'shevach. Um, begin with denigration and end with praise. And the Gemara quotes a dispute between Rav and Shmuel about uh, how this is to be accomplished. Rav says the gnut and the shevach, refer, the gnut refers to when we were idolatrous, and the shevach refers to when God chose us. And therefore, the next thing we do is, is read Rav's Haggadah. We say, Mitchila ovdei avadah zarahayu avotenu v'achshav kirvanu hamakom l'avodato. Um, through the mitzvot which God commanded us, we became the cho- we became a chosen nation. The condition of existing without commandments is the gnut, and the and having the commandments is a, is the shevach. So first we do Rav's Haggadah, then uh, we do Shmuel's Haggadah. Shmuel says that matchil bignut u'misayim b'shevach. We means avadim hayinu. We discuss the 
transition from slavery to freedom. Shmuel's version of the Haggadah commences with the introduction, Baruch Shomer Avtachato, blessed is he who keeps his promise to Israel, and then we proceed to a detailed exposition of the slavery and the redemption as explained in the exegesis of Aramio Vedavi, concluding with the plagues. Um, so, uh, first unit in Magid was discussion of the laws, second unit was the actual story, which is accomplished in two ways. We follow both Rav and Shmuel. Um, and then we go on to Rabban Gamliel. He says, Rabban Gamliel haya omer, kol shelo amar shloshad varim elu bepesach lo yatsai dechovato ve'eluhen pesach matzau maror. And then he explains, pesach sheyovatenu ochlim bizman shebet amidash ayakam al shuma, al shum shepasach hakadosh baruch hu al batei avotenu. Maror zushanu ochlim al shuma, al shum shelo yispik b'tzei kam shalavotenu lachmitz. Maror zeshanu ochlim al shumam al shum shemeru hamitzrim et chayavotenu b'mitzrayim. Rabban Gamliel unites both motifs, the laws of Pesach and the story of, of our servitude and redemption. We declare that we w- take upon ourselves the fulfillment of God's commandments tonight, which is Rav's Haggadah, that Gnut and Shevach refer to uh, being uh, having mitzvot and not having mitzvot. And uh, then we explain the symbolic meanings of the commandments, because uh, they were embittered and because their dough had no time to rise, which recounts the emergence from slavery to freedom, which is Shmuel's version of the Haggadah. So therefore, after the first two units of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim contained in Magid, first the discussion of the laws, then the discussion of the story itself, we come to the third unit, Rabban Gamliel's dictum, which talks about Sipur al Yidei Ma'aseh, performing symbolic actions. This is completed only when you actually eat the matzah and the maror, um, we should have brought Rabban Gamliel's statement right before eating the Matzah Maror, but since it's a fulfillment of Sipur, we recite it in Magid over the second cup. The first three units of Sipur intermix the commandments and their historical background in the Exodus from Egypt. The fourth unit in Magid is Hallel. But before we begin to praise and thank God for our freedom, we must assert a law upon which the saying of Hallel is dependent. In every generation, a person must see himself as though he left Egypt. Now, we said something similar at the beginning of Magid. Had God not taken us out of Egypt, we still would have been enslaved. Why do we need to repeat it? Um, the Rav notes that there is a difference between the two. Tells us that the Exodus is still relevant to us, and therefore it's worth recounting. Therefore, we are going to engage in Sipuritziat Mitzrayim. However, in order to praise God, in order to be overwhelmed with the desire to sing a song to God, to sing Hallel, we have to experience something more than just that these events are relevant. We have to feel that we are reliving them, that we are experiencing them ourselves. Um, and therefore, we say now, before we can say Hallel, we have to feel that we have to relive it. Um, if we transform the exodus from Egypt into a personal experience, that engenders the obligation to recite praise of Hallel, as the Haggadah itself stresses. Because 
Therefore, lefichach anachnu chayavim lodot lahalel l'shabach. Therefore, we are obligated to thank, to praise, and extol God. Since we see ourselves as having just left Egypt, we must praise God for his salvation. We cannot burst out in a song of praise unless we experience the salvation ourselves. This idea of re-experiencing the Exodus is a major theme of the book, and I uh, will leave it for your own reading of the book. I want to wish everyone a Chag Kasher V'Sameach and a Chodesh Tov. You've been listening to Harav Ruben Sigler spoke about the publications of the Torah Salah Foundation. The first section of the Pasha begins in Ola Korbano. There's a listing of all the Korbanot that a person will bring in the Pasha, in this week's Pasha and next week's Pasha. The first one is Ola. And Ola is called an Ola because it's, all of it is Ola. All of it is burnt. All of it is, is, is given to God on, on the fire on the altar. And no part is, is eaten either by the Kohanim, which is what happens with the Chatat, or by the owners, the person who brought the Korban, which is what happens with a Shalamim. And Ola is completely burnt. Why is it the first sacrifice mentioned? One can say a number of possibilities. And the Maganavram says that the Gemara explains that an Ola has the effect of being mechaper, of atoning for sins of omission. So not doing fully, in the best way, something which you had to do. That's as opposed to a chatat. A chatat is what? Because you did something which you weren't allowed to do. You, you, you ate something which was prohibited. So there's a very specific chet which requires you to bring a chatat for that, for that chet. You machal Shabbos. You have to bring a chatat. So then Allah, you bring it's mechaper, it atones for for not doing something which you should have done. And I think, in extension, for not doing fully something which you should have done. The Gemara then says, well, Zvachim says that one can assume that everybody at all times is obligated or should be obligated to bring an Ola. Of course, we would never say that everybody is obligated to bring a Chatat. Many, many Jews have never done a sin which requires one to do a chatat, thank God. But a sin of omission, that someone can say, I'm, I've done everything I can possibly do, I'm perfect. I've never been slightly negative, I've never been lazy, I've never not fully dedicated myself. That, that's almost impossible. And therefore one can assume that anyone is chayev and Allah, and that's a certain distinction which is not important for us in halacha, in terms of uh, one of the laws of, of, of bringing korbanot. So the Magayin Avram explains that and what we're really saying is that everybody has to bring an Ola. That's why the Torah brings Ola first. Because he's claiming that the order here is the most important. Everyone is Chayv and Ola. So mention that one first. Those who nefesh ki yechetaz it says that soul which has sinned he will have to bring a chetaz. That will come that will come later on. I once heard an explanation that this uh, this understanding of Ola explains the verse there is no righteous person in the land who does only good and never sins. The question is, why do you need to mention Asir Ya'asetov, who does good? What you want to say is there is no person who has never sinned. What does it mean there is no person who does good and never sins? So the explanation is, there are, there are many people who have never sinned a sin of commission. But what the verse is saying is that there's no one who 
has done only good and never sinned. In the context of doing only good, never sinned means and never faltered and never lacked with any actions of doing good. There is no one who does only good without failure. So the only, doing only good makes the the lo into a sin of omission. The context explains the lo means doesn't miss, hasn't hasn't somehow somehow missed the point. Where if it didn't say that, you would interpret it to mean hasn't sinned specifically a concrete sin. And that, in fact, would not be true, and nor would we want to say such a thing. Today's halacha yomit is tefillat tashlumin. The Gemara in Bechot explains that if somebody did not daven a given tefillah, let's say he did not daven shacharit, as yitpalel mincha shtayim. He can daven mincha, two minchas. The second tefillah is called tashlumin, a payment, repayment for the tefillah that's missed. This halacha applies only if the tefillah you didn't daven was either be'ones or be'shogeg, either unavoidable or shogeg means even negligence, but not mezid, not deliberate. If someone deliberately did not daven, even though he knew he should daven, he chose not to daven, then he does not have the option of tefillah tashlumin. Tefillah tashlumin is only in the very next tefillah. In other words, if you did not have in Ma'ariv, you have in Shacharit twice. If you did not have in Shacharit, you have in Mincha twice. If you did not have in Mincha, you have in Ma'ariv twice. If you missed the first one, although there are Puskim who think that it perhaps can go longer, but the, the explicit Gemara only speaks of the next tefillah, and that's what Rov, the most of the Puskim hold, is that only the very next tefillah one can do Tashlumin. If you missed that, then it's too late. And you can no longer you can no longer accomplish the accomplish the the uh, the tashlumin. The Gemara says that in tashlumin, when you daven twice, so the first davening is the tefilat chova; it's the appropriate tefilah for that time, and the second one is the tashlumin, and that has to be done in that order. It's a mental thing; you have to think, you have to intend that the first tefilah be the present tefilah. And the second one, the additional one, be the tashlumin. If you do it in the other order, as it doesn't work. And then you have to dive in a third tefillah, because tashlumin must come at the end, must come after, after the, after the chova. An interesting question arises, is, it arises with women, since many women either follow the psak of davening once a day, or many women follow the psak of the Mishnah Berurah, that they daven twice a day. So what happens if a woman who's davening twice a day forgets mincha? So I think, all, as far as I know, all poskim agree, or the, most poskim agree, that she should daven ma'ariv once. In other words, since ma'ariv is a tefillah, so the fact that she doesn't usually daven ma'ariv, but it still is the next tefillah for Am Yisrael, and therefore she can daven tashlumin at that time, even without davening ma'ariv chova, she davens ma'ariv tashlumin. If a woman davens three times a day, then she's like a man, and she davens the next tefillah, tashlumin, even if one would claim maybe she doesn't have to, but nonetheless, uh, she's able to daven tashlumin to fill in for the tefillah which she, which she missed. Uh, so that has halacha, the mice ramifications for tefillah uh, tashlumin. The other question that arises in tefillah tashlumin, which we won't discuss today, is what happens when the time that you're saying tashlumin has different rules of tefillah. For instance, if one didn't daven mincha on Rosh Chodesh, the second day, the, the last day of Rosh Chodesh, when one davens ma'ariv, and what happened? Uh, so when one davens ma'ariv, you, you can't say al now, because it's not Rosh Chodesh anymore. So should one, should one daven? 
one more complicated question. If one daven mincha on Rosh Chodesh, but didn't say Yavah Yavah, and the halacha then says you have to repeat Shmon Esrei, but he didn't remember until night time. What's going to happen now if he repeats another Shmon Esrei? He's not going to say Yavah Yavah anyhow. So this is a question which we'll discuss when we get to one of these Chagim, I guess when we get to Rosh Chodesh, uh, but for the basic rules of Tilat HaShlomin, we discussed today. And that's all for today. We'll be back next week. Next week will be the last week before our Pesach vacation. Uh, the Shiva is on vacation, and so is KMTT after next week. Next week we will still have uh, our broadcasts. Uh, some of them will be will be devoting them more to Hilchot, Hilchot Pesach. Until then, wishing you a Shabbat Shalom. Bibakat HaTorah Bitzion, you have been listening to KMTT, the Torah podcast. Ki Mitzion Teitzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Mirushalayim.